Back in uh, March of 1991, I had the privilege of attending a special dinner for those who had planned uh, that year's uh, Minnesota prayer breakfast. And I was there because uh, one of my elders was on uh, the planning committee, and uh, they were honoring those who had planned the state prayer breakfast, and my elder invited me to come along, and I was glad to do so. Well, that night at uh, the dinner, uh, the speaker was uh, Senator John Ashcroft from Missouri, uh, a strong Christian member of uh, the Assemblies of God. Uh, and as he opened that talk that night, uh, to those of us that were there, he uh, related an event from his time as governor of Missouri. Uh, and he said back in, in uh, 1986, uh, he was invited by First Baptist Church of uh, Jefferson City, Missouri, uh, to speak at the dedication of their new $4 million sanctuary. And so he agreed to do so, and being a good Pentecostal, uh, he spoke on the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And the point of his message, he said, was, may this be a place where the fire falls. That's what he preached at that dedication. Well, at that point in telling the story, he reached into his suit coat pocket, and he pulled out a newspaper article from uh, the Jefferson City, Missouri newspaper. And the headlines in large, bold type was, Fire Guts Church Sanctuary. Of course, that wasn't what he meant when he had said, may this be a place where the fire falls. May this be a place where the power of the Holy Spirit is evident. Well, that's a godly desire. Uh, that is a godly prayer. Make no mistake about it, the power of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential if ministry is to be effective. But how often it is we assume... Uh, as the world does around us, that if you're going to be effective and successful, what it's going to take is ingenuity and human creativity and effort. Uh, it's going to take a lot of careful planning, personal connections, technique. You employ all those things, and uh, things in the church even are going to be successful. But what is the teaching of Scripture? The teaching of Scripture is clear. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, he calls to each of us as believers, and he says, Be filled with the Spirit. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus speaking to his followers there on the Mount of Olives just before his ascension, he said, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. If you recall, before the Advent season and Christmas and New Year's, I've begun a series of messages on the life and on the book of Joshua. And I began a series of introductory messages before we ever get to Joshua 1 and verse 1. Because there are in the scriptures, prior to the book of Joshua, there are seven events, seven incidents in Joshua's life uh, that helped to shape him and to mold him and to teach him various lessons as God was preparing him to be the leader of the people after Moses' death. And so in November, as we began this series just before Advent, we surveyed the first three of those events, those circumstances. The first one we looked at was in Exodus 17, 
where Joshua is fighting the Amalekites, and he learns the vital importance of prayer for victory and power in ministry. If you remember, Moses was standing on a small hill, and there was Joshua and the forces of Israel out on the plain, and Moses was standing there with his arms raised in prayer. And the scripture says, as long as his arms were raised in prayer, Joshua and the people prevailed. But when his arms got weary and he had to put them down, the Amalekites began to prevail. And so what Joshua learned in that event was when the victory was won, he understood it wasn't because he was a great general. That wasn't the bottom line. It wasn't because the soldiers were well-trained. That wasn't the bottom line. But he understood that victory and power in life, in our own individual lives, in us as a group, comes only as we trust the Lord and call upon him in prayer. That was the first incident. Then we looked at Numbers 2 and 3 together, Exodus chapter 24 and Exodus 33, where uh, Joshua is overwhelmed by the majesty of God. He's up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, overwhelmed by the vision of God's glory that he has seen. And then Exodus 33, where he and Moses would go out to the tent of meeting, God's presence would be there. Moses would go back to the camp, but Joshua said, I can't go back. I want to spend more time in God's presence. And so what we saw is the importance of making a relationship with God a priority, that we're not so busy that we don't dedicate time to developing a relationship with God. Something else that Joshua learned in those incidents also was, and I asked you this question, how big is your God? He's up on Mount Sinai, Joshua is, and there's glory and thunder and light, and it's amazing, and he's overwhelmed. And I challenge you with the question, do you have a little God or a big God? And that relationship with the great eternal God of glory to make that a priority, to grow in our understanding and in our relationship with the Lord. Well, this morning, as you can see from the screen, I want to take three incidents together. Of the seven, I want to tackle these three very briefly together. And what we're going to discover is what Joshua learns is how essential is the presence and power and leading of the Holy Spirit in life and in ministry. And so I want to highlight this truth under three headings. The first one is from Numbers chapter 11. When you come to the end of Numbers chapter 10, the people have left Mount Sinai. God has revealed his holy law. They have the Ten Commandments. They have all the other laws that God has given. And as they move away from Mount Sinai, the people are in a complaining frame of mind. They've been eating this manna and they're sick and tired of it. And so they say, I wish we had meat to eat. Um, I wish we were back in Egypt. You know, we used to be able to catch fish for free in the Nile River. Now we got nothing. Um, We remember, they said, the melons, the musk melons and watermelons and cucumbers and onions and spices and garlic and all the stuff we had in Egypt. Now all we have is this miserable manna out here and we're sick and tired of it. Well, Moses, this is kind of a last straw for Moses. And so he turns to the Lord, and I want to read part of what Moses says. I want to read Numbers 11, verses 14 and 15. He says to the Lord, I am not able to carry all this people alone. I've had it. Can't do it. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, if you're going to keep me as the leader, I don't want to do it. Kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight. That's an interesting petition, isn't it? That I may not see my wretchedness. Just go ahead and kill me. I don't want to do this. If this is the way you're going to treat me, I'm done. Put an end to my life. 
Well, all right, so what does the Lord say? What's the solution? Verses 16 and 17. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you, and I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. All right, I'm going to give you an elder board of 70 members, and they're going to help you do the work. All right, so now let's jump to verse 24. That's the passage I have on the screen here. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now, continue reading with verse 26. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Joshua doesn't come across in a very favorable light in this passage, does he? He got all stirred up, you notice our text says, because two men were prophesying in the camp who he thought didn't have any business doing so. Moses had held a special commissioning service. We read this in the passage. And all 70 of the elders were supposed to be at the commissioning service. But what do we discover? Two of the 70 didn't show up at the service. For whatever reason, doesn't tell us why the two weren't there. But there were 68 of the 70 who were there, and the 68 who were there began to prophesy as God's Spirit came upon them. But the two that didn't show up, who were still back in the camp, started prophesying also. And Joshua comes to Moses and says, this can't continue. They're not authorized to do this. I mean, you didn't lay your hands on them. You didn't commission them. This can't be happening. If they're allowed to continue, this will undermine your leadership. This will undermine your authority. Whatever is done around here needs to be done under your direct supervision or it shouldn't happen, Joshua says to Moses. We need to control everything that happens. Joshua doesn't come across in a good light, does he? Joshua is narrow. He is partisan. He is protecting his turf. He is protecting Moses' turf. He is suspicious. He is critical of anything else. Let me just say this. If God is going to bless and enlarge your life for his glory, it will not happen if you have Joshua's attitude. If God is going to bless this congregation and enlarge the ministry of our congregation for his glory, he will not bless that kind of attitude. A partisan, exclusive spirit. 
Now, now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This text is talking about being unified together as a body, and to put it in New Testament terms, as a body of Christ. I'm not advocating unity at the expense of truth. Jesus, in John 17, that great prayer on unity, he prays that his followers would be unified, that they would be one. But in that prayer, as he prays for unity, what does he say in verse 17 to his heavenly Father? Sanctify them in the truth is the prayer. Your word is truth. And so you think about our congregation here. We come from many different backgrounds. Not everybody, like myself, grew up Lutheran. We come from different backgrounds, different Christian traditions. But we need to understand that in the ministry and the call of the gospel here, we are one together. As we gather together, if we hold up the Bible, all of us, as God's truth, as holy, inspired, inerrant word of God, if we joyously proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, if we firmly believe that salvation is only through the blood of Christ shed on the cross for sins, that we're saved by grace through faith alone, if we understand that we're called to live a life of daily repentance and faith and growing in our relationship with God, if we together take a, take a bold and uncompromising stand on the issues, the moral and spiritual issues of the day, then we're to be one together in Christ. On those things that are fundamental, those things that are central, those things that are vital. And so we're not in competition with our brothers and sisters in Christ. As a Lutheran pastor, I don't look at it as my responsibility to straighten all of you out that may not totally agree with Lutheran doctrine. That's not my job to do that. I have my convictions, and very strong convictions, but we are to be together in Christ and to say God has called us as a fellowship of believers to carry on ministry in a spirit of oneness on those core things that matter together. And even as we look at other people, we can't look at them and say, well, they're not part of our group. Uh, they don't belong to our denomination. Um, they don't interpret everything the way we do. They shouldn't be going around prophesying, so to speak because they're not one of us. That kind of attitude is so deadly and so harmful. And so in ministry, and Joshua comes to understand this, there's not competition between the 68 and the 2. There is to be a oneness in the ministry that God has called us as a body of believers to be, to be part of. And it's critical in a local congregation that among ourselves, there's a spirit of, of unity. And by the way, it's not uniformity. Uniformity is a cult. Uh, if, if, if there's a group that demands uniformity, get out of it, because it's a cult. But there is a unity where there can be basic things that we're in harmony and agreement on, but we can differ on other things, but still be heart and heart together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 133 puts it this way, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And then it goes on in verse 3 and says, For there the Lord has commanded his blessing. Where there's unity, God brings his blessing. Life forevermore. And so Joshua learns the lesson of not being a partisan. Not saying, if, if I don't officially authorize it or you, Moses, don't officially authorize it, can't be done. Nobody should be doing it. Needs to be under our thumb. Everything needs to be under our authority. Joshua learned a very valuable lesson, which... 
stood him in good stead in the days to come as he took over leadership of the people. So the importance of the unity of the Spirit. Second thing I want you to see is the importance of the filling of the Spirit. This is in uh, Numbers chapter 27. Uh, in Numbers 26, a great census had been taken. That's why the book of Numbers is called Numbers, because there are two censuses, one at the beginning and one at the end, the numbering of the people. And so the second census had been taken of all the tribes and how many were in each tribe and so on. And the whole generation had died off, the previous generation that came out of Egypt. All of them were dead and gone, except for Joshua and Caleb. They were the only ones still living of the older generation. And you come to Numbers chapter 27, and it's time for Moses to die. The Lord has told him it is his time to depart. And so it is time for Moses to appoint a successor. And so he appoints the one who's been his right-hand assistant for 40 years, uh, he appoints Joshua to take over after his death. So I want you to notice the text. Let's read it together what it says. It says, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him. So Eleazar will inquire of the Lord and pass it on to Joshua. Shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. You notice how Joshua is described in this text. He is described as a man in whom is the Spirit. I highlighted that on the screen. There's no such thing as a self-made servant of the Lord. And, and one of Satan's great deceptions for all of us is that we can trust in our own resources. I've had training, I've had education, I've had experience, I'm very determined, I'm persistent, I try hard, I've got skills, resources, all of those things. Yes, Satan says, trust in that, that'll do it. And what we discover here, the key to success in life and ministry individually and as a congregation is to be filled with the Spirit. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Uh, it's not like a glass of water. That's kind of how we envision it. So our life is the empty glass we envision and God takes and pours His Spirit in and hopefully it goes up to the top of the glass. It's not how it works. Because the Holy Spirit is a person. And so either you have the Holy Spirit or you don't. It's all or nothing. So that's not what the filling of the Holy Spirit means. The question is, if the Holy Spirit is in your life, how much does he have of you? You see, that's the question. Does he control your decision making? Does he control your intellect, your will? 
Does he control every aspect of your life? Are you living in openness and honesty before him? That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is a voluntary surrender of every area of life to the sovereignty of God, to the leadership of Christ through his Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so when one is Spirit-filled, there will be evidence in the life. I wish I had time to take you to Ephesians 5 where Paul says in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit because he goes on to say, you can tell when somebody's filled with the Spirit because these things will be evident. And he mentions praise. If somebody's Spirit-filled, they'll be a joyful, God-honoring kind of person. Praising the Lord, speaking to one another, Paul says, in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. One who's filled with the Spirit, you'll notice it because they have a heart and a voice of praise. If you're filled with the Spirit, Paul goes on to say, you'll be filled with thanksgiving. Giving thanks to God and the Father through Jesus Christ. A person filled with the Spirit is not complaining, is not grumbling. I don't like the way things are. I don't like the way they run this at the church or that at the church. Okay, a spirit-filled person isn't like that, doesn't have a negative, complaining spirit. There is a fullness of thanksgiving, and then there is a fullness of submission. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so whatever the structures that the Lord has set up, be it in government, in church, in the home, whatever it is, those who have been given authority by God, others to in a willing and joyful way to be under their leadership and to be under their authority. So, so a spirit-filled person isn't a my way or the highway kind of person. And so when we're filled with the Spirit, we find power. But a lot of times, and I find this in the work of the church, how many of us try to carry out, we volunteer for something, let's say, or whatever it might be, and we try to carry it out in our own strength, and no wonder in the middle of the year we get exhausted or we get kind of the buzzword of our day, I'm burned out, we say. Why is that? It's because we're doing it in our own strength. That's why. It's because we're not prayerfully relying on the Lord. We don't have a very big God. we got to do most of it ourselves. And, and, and so the filling of the Holy Spirit gives us the power, rather than us trying to push ministry or jumpstart ministry, the filling of the Spirit, those who are filled with God's Spirit, have a power that is not their own. The filling of the Holy Spirit. Then the last one, the gifts of the Spirit. Let me read Deuteronomy 34, verses 7 and 9. It says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him, so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So Moses has died at the age of 120. Joshua is now the national leader. What does he need for his awesome task? Of all the gifts of the Spirit, what does he need preeminently? And the answer is wisdom. Think of all the issues. Millions of people under his leadership and authority. 
What do you do? How do you handle all the issues that arise? And so God gave to Joshua exactly what he needed. Of all the spiritual gifts that Joshua had, and he had more than one, I'm very sure, but God gave to him the spirit of wisdom. So what about us? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians 12 is one of the New Testament passages on the gift of the Spirit. And Paul says, to each is given. To each. Okay, so if you're a believer here, each means each of you. All right, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So if you have a gift of the Spirit, you're not to sit on it and just come in and out the door every Sunday. If you are a believer, you've been gifted by the Spirit of God and you are to utilize those gifts for the common good. And then Paul goes on and gives examples of what some of those gifts are. And he says, to one, this gift is given. Then he talks about it. To another, this gift is given. To another, this one, this one, all the way down the line. All right, so various gifts are given for the common good. Then verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So there's a diversity of gifts, but depending on what you're called to do, those gifts differ, but the Holy Spirit's presence and power is the same no matter what your gift, no matter what the opportunity God has placed before you. And so we can rest in that. We can serve with confidence. We can find uh, success and victory in the will of God. The gifting of the Spirit. Without the gifting of the Spirit of God, nothing of eternal value will happen. And I trust that you have learned. I have learned this lesson. I trust you've learned it as well, that when God calls you to do something and you realize you aren't capable of doing it, which is the kind of person God loves to call, when God calls you to do something and you're not able to do it, what does He do? He gives you every gift of His Spirit that you're going to need. Gives it to you in overwhelming measure. Everything necessary for the task so that you can carry it out for the common good and for the glory of His name. I think a beautiful prayer for all of us as we think about serving the Lord individually and uh, collectively as a congregation here in 2024, is that beautiful little chorus many of us learned years and years ago, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we are self-sufficient by nature. Um, we are self-centered by nature. And, but then, Lord, your grace grabs hold of us, and we become a new creation. But we still battle with the old nature that we carry with us till the day we go home to glory. And so, Lord, there's, there's a constant battle that goes on in our hearts, in our lives. Will we submit to the leading of your Spirit, or will we choose to go our own direction? And so, Lord, teach us what it is to surrender to you day by day. May we be filled with your Holy Spirit so that your power might shine out of us, so that you might be glorified, so that great things might happen in the work of your kingdom. Because it is not by might or by power or by planning or by having good volunteers, but it is by your Spirit.
and by your spirit alone. And so, Lord, uh, equip each one of us in whatever our calling is, whatever our ministry is. May we be truly spirit-filled so that we might make a difference in the people we contact during the week, those that in the course of our job that we talk to or interact with, uh, that we might be um, living in such a way that Jesus Christ is evident and seen in our lives and that there is a power that we have, a wisdom, an insight, a direction that we have that is not our own. Thank you for your holy word that your spirit has breathed out for us and that as we read it, as we study it, as we meditate on it, as we pray over it, we find the strength and power for all things. So grant that to each one of us. We pray it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.